And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. There are few passages in the Bible more recognizable than the Ten Commandments. There are those that haven't been to church in decades, yet are very, very upset when a statue of the Ten Commandments gets taken down somewhere. There are those that can't name all 12 apostles, but they maybe can name a couple Ten Commandments to you. We've all seen the movie. We all know about it. And, you know, it's very hard to find somebody that has a real problem with the Ten Commandments, which when you get into them, it's surprising because there actually is quite a bit of insistence by the Lord on what is right from this. So there's a lot of tradition and a lot of just cultural ideas and dramatizations that have grown up around this. So hopefully we can uh, get a a biblical picture that still allows us to enjoy it. And let's remember where we are. Chapter 20 opens with the word and, which is the Hebrew vav consecutive. You don't need to worry about that. All it means is that it is a definite continuation of what has been going on. So there's a chapter break, probably a good place for one, but this is still part of the story that we've been reading so far. Israel has left the land of Egypt After the 10 plagues, they've crossed the wilderness through the Red Sea. They've come to Mount Sinai. They confirmed the covenant with the Lord. God said, I brought you out, right? That's that prevenient grace. Because now I want to make a covenant. I want to make an agreement, a contract with you. I'll be your God if you'll be my people. I'll bless you if you serve me. And they said, yes, of course, because why wouldn't you? After three days then, the Lord said, consecrate yourselves because I'm going to come upon this mountain. And the Lord did. And that mighty, what we call a theophany, an appearance of God. The mountain, Mount Sinai, is burning. There's smoke, there's fire, there's thunder. It says there was a storm. So it wasn't just that the mountain was engulfed in flame and smoke. It said it was going up like a kiln, like an oven. But the skies were, were stormy and thunder and lightning and voices and trumpets. There's a loud, remember that trumpet blast that just kept getting louder and louder. And the people were terrified. And Moses went up. Remember, God called Moses out of that that theophany and brought him up into the mountain and said, now go back to the people. And so he went back down in verse 25. He's down the mountain again. So in the movie, Moses is on the mountain and receives the Ten Commandments. That's not how the Bible lays out the sequence. It's actually way cooler than that. So they're down the mountain, which means when God speaks these words, it's not just Moses that hears them. Everybody hears these 10 words, as it will say, the 10 commandments. And this section here, Exodus chapter 20, verse 1, begins a a, a subsection of Exodus and that extends actually beyond Exodus, which is called the book of the law, which will extend, some want to take it to the end of numbers and some will include Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy means second law. So some people say it's not the first book, it's the second book, but you know, potato, potato at this point, but this is where you actually get into the law part of what is called the law. The first five books of the Bible are called the Torah in Hebrew, the law. Well, up till now, we've had a lot of great stories, but now we're actually going to get some laws and they're not all going to be fascinating and interesting because these were actual laws, but it is important for us to know them all. But by beginning this, Now the Lord is beginning to give his commandments to the people. He's giving them the stipulations of the covenant. And he begins by saying who he is. He uses that covenant name, Yahweh, I am the Lord. Jehovah is another way of vocalizing that. Who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. So God's about to tell him what to do for three or four books. So who is God to tell us? Well, he's the Lord that brought you out of slavery. 
not only that, but they've agreed to a covenant with the Lord, of course. He reminds them who he is, what their relationship is, the covenant that began with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and is now affirmed through Moses. And the first words that God is going to give are these, what we call Ten Commandments. The Bible very often will use these ten, as we often do today, as representative laws of the Old Covenant. Deuteronomy chapter 4.13, when Moses is rehearsing the story of what happened at Mount Sinai, he'll say, and God gave you the words of the covenant, my ten words that I gave you, my ten commandments. And this is not to say that these ten are the whole law, obviously. There's going to be something like 600 commandments that God actually gives. But these are representative. They're, it's not that they're ceremonial, but they are. These are real commandments, but they kind of provide an overarching framework of what God is going to ask of them. And some have said that you can divide the next books, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, by the Ten Commandments. I don't really find those persuasive, but the point is God is going to lay down these ten and then expand upon these ten. And very often it'll use these as representative of God's whole law. And you're going to see even in the New Testament, in some of the instructions that Paul gives, you can kind of see him following the Ten Commandments structure as he explains things. It was, it's a very significant portion of Scripture. But you've got to imagine these words, remember, thundering forth from the fiery mountain of God. Not just Moses hearing the voice of the Lord, but that trumpet that was so loud, they didn't even want to stand close to the mountain. And God is going to tell them these 10. Can you imagine standing there and hearing out of this flaming, smoking mountain, thunder and lightning, and you hear, I am the Lord. Who is this? That's, that's the I am that Moses has been talking about. However, we like these 10 because they're in a nice little set, right? And it's easy to remember all of them. We were joking before service, remembering some of the mnemonics we had when we were kids to try to remember all 10 of them. And I did this thing where you went through every finger and that helped you remember which, which the 10 were. However, they are part of the Old Covenant. In fact, they are representative of the Old Covenant. And it is important for us as New Testament Christians who are no longer under the Old Covenant to know how they relate to us. We spent a significant amount of time in Romans 6 and 7 looking at Paul's words where he says that we are no longer under the law. Now we're about to start studying it, and it's really easy to say, well, there it is right there in your Bible. You have to, you have to just do what it says. Yeah, place for that. But there's also a whole Bible to understand. Because Paul says in Galatians chapter 3, verses 23 through 26, after Jesus has come, of course, he said that before faith came, that is the gospel by grace through faith. Before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. It's not a very flattering portrayal of the law, is it? That we're captive, we're prisoners. So then the law was our guardian. That word could be translated tutor or even financial manager until Christ came. So the law was our guardian, our master. How long? Until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. And that guardian, of course, was the law. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. So we're saved by grace through faith, not of works, lest any man should boast. 
And the New Testament makes no bones about it that a Christian, especially a Gentile Christian, is not under the law. So how do we handle these books? How do we read through them? How do we go through all these passages? We're going to talk about things like not eating bats. We're going to be talking about not cutting the edges of your beard, having tassels on your robes, what to do if, you know, you accidentally kill your neighbor's ox. You might think I've, I've never accidentally done that before, you know. How are we supposed to read these and, and glean from them? Because the Bible makes very clear, too, you can't pick and choose, James says that, Paul says that, Jesus said that, Moses said that. You can't say, well, the Ten Commandments, we keep those, but obviously we don't keep the one about binding the law to your forehead. Well, how do we know that? It's all part of the same law. As I've explained before, we know this now, there, there is a much more elegant solution that the scripture gives us, which is that we are not under the law and we are not bound by, as it says, the letter, but we live by the Spirit. So I'm going to give us four principles, if you're taking notes, that will help you as you go through the whole Old Covenant. So from Exodus through Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, how do you handle these commandments that, you, that are not binding upon you as a Christian, but some of them are going to say things like, thou shalt not kill. So wait a minute, is that not binding upon me? Well, it is, but we've, we, let's, let's figure this out. I think you all can, can see the, the thing we need to figure out here. Principle number one, or what we go through number one, sort out the specifics when you're reading the law. It's important also to know the genre of the law that you're reading. We say law with a capital L and we give it a spiritual meaning, and it is that. But it also was the law. If you were living in Israel, this was how you lived. This is a system not just of morality, but of jurisprudence. It's going to give us the kinds of fines that you have to pay. It's going to give us the penalties that have to be executed against somebody. It's got all kinds of rituals in it. So that's the part that we need to be able to sort out. These specific things are, are not applicable to New Covenant believers. And I'm going to read some more verses in a minute that will remind us of that. But, you know, as we read it, it'd be very easy to go, ah, therefore now we all have to have guardrails on the roofs of our houses. Because it says it in your Bible. Well, let's sort out the specific and get to number two, apply the principles. The law, as it is a revelation of what is good, is binding upon everybody. And this is something that Paul talked about in Romans. Good and evil existed before the law. So as the law reveals what is good and what is evil, it is absolutely binding. It's not binding because it's written in the letter of the law, but it's because it's telling us what is good and what is right. So we're sorting out these specifics. I'll use that, that railing around the roof example again. You know, we don't get up on our roofs very much, you know, so what's the principle he's trying to teach there? Is that you're responsible for the safety of somebody in your house. If somebody's there, it's important for you to take care of them and to think ahead and, and try, to be, try to be kind and be generous and, and be careful. And you're liable for it, right? There's a legal principle there as well. And so we can apply that principle, can't we? That you are responsible for those that come into your house. You're responsible for those who are under your hospitality, so to speak. We obey those principles as they are God's revelation. Now, this part sounds like a softening, so it's good for us to get number three. We intensify the heart. So we sort out the specifics, we apply the principle, and then we intensify the heart. That's what Jesus did. Jesus got on everybody's nerves by not keeping the specifics of the law. But you know what he did? He always kept the spirit of the law, and he always did it up to 11. 
He told us to follow the heart of what the law was trying to communicate. Remember, he said, you tithe mint and dill and cumin, and that's real great, but you're neglecting the weightier matters of the law like justice and mercy. He told us, you have heard it said, you'll not commit adultery. I tell you not to look with lust upon a woman. So you can look at the specific, which is in this case good, not to commit adultery. But Jesus says, let's go deeper. Don't even look with lust upon somebody. Don't even have that desire in your heart. Root it out. He said, cut out your eyes if they're going to make you sin, right? Intensify the heart of what God is trying to communicate. Because as Christians, Jesus said, I didn't come to set you free to do a bunch of sinning. I set you free to be the fulfillers of my law through, number four, submission to the Holy Spirit. This is the, the very important thing that has to be in there. That we walk, the Bible says, not according to the old way of the letter, but according to the new way of the Spirit. We're walking in the fulfillment of Jeremiah and Ezekiel's prophecies when God said, I'll take the heart of stone out and I'll put in a heart of flesh. I'm going to write my laws on your heart and you'll live them that way. And we are to have a walking, living, dynamic relationship with God's Holy Spirit to lead us through some of these difficulties that we have. That's where our obedience comes from. So as we go through these verses, I'm not going to go through each one of these principles, but this is essentially what we're doing. And today it's rather easy to do that as we go through the 10. But as time goes on, we might have some sticky questions. Like when he starts to give laws about slavery, or when he starts to give laws about marriage, or when he starts to give law about harvesting, and most of us aren't farmers, it's important for us to be able to go through that process. We search the entirety of the scriptures because we have the entirety of the scriptures. We also know that Jesus Christ has fulfilled the law, so we need to read it through the lens of Jesus Christ. And remember that we are free indeed in Christ Jesus. So this is an important overarching heading as we get into the book of the law. We start by going through these 10, and these 10, as you know very well, are, are very basic, and they're very fundamental, so it's easy to go through this process, um, and I hope that it'll be some good reminders for us. But let's, let's start going through these 10 commandments, and hopefully we'll get through all 10, but we'll see how we do. Verse 3, you shall have no other gods before me. This is the first commandment. This is the law against polytheism. He announces, I am the Lord. There is no other, so you shall have no other God before me. Very simply, the first commandment is against worshiping other gods. There is only one God. There is only one Lord, and his name is Yahweh. I am Jehovah. Now, when you see that word before, no other gods before me, some folks want to try to get cute and say, as long as God is the first of your gods, then you can worship the others. Right? You can get a little Allah, a little Buddha in there, a little Krishna, as long as Jesus is first. No, 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 no. <laughs> that, that word before, in Hebrew, this is al-panim. Al means like to or toward. Panim means face. Remember in the Old Testament, very often they'll say, you will not see my face again, or how can I stand before the face of the king? They use that as an image very often. So you could say, you shall have no other gods in my face. I like that. Because God is saying, I'm the only God, and I'm not going to put up with seeing other gods brought into my presence, because there is no other. This verse is not implying that you can have what's called henotheism, which means I believe in lots of gods, but Jesus is number one. No, no. There is only one God and one Lord. 
1 Timothy 2.5 says, There is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. Without taking too much time to get into doctrine that you already know, Jesus Christ said, I and the Father are one. So as New Testament believers, we read no other gods before me. We know that it is Jesus Christ who has the name above every name, and he's certainly included in this commandment. The first principle of the law is that there is no other God but the Lord. All other deities, all other religions and spiritual ideas are lies especially the ones that try to take mostly Christianity and stir in some other stuff. 1 Timothy 4.1 actually says that in the last days, men will give heed to deceiving spirits and doctrines of demons. And while we might desire religious tolerance on a social level, you know, we've kind of run this experiment a few times and most of us are willing to say, let's just, you know, everybody can, can at a state level, be free to worship how they please. But that should never creep into our thoughts and our theology to say, therefore, it really doesn't matter what you believe. We never admit the possibility that there are other equally viable ways to God. Scripture has warned us against that. That these are lies. God had just demonstrated that in a wonderful way at Egypt. Egypt was the crown of the world at this time. They had all these amazing gods that they worshiped with this amazing mythology and artwork and the Lord comes in and smashes it all to pieces. You shall have no other gods before me. And I'm sure staring up at the flaming Mount Sinai, they realized, okay, yep, I get this one. In your own life, you never must allow yourself to create an a la carte religion, like buffet style. It's like, well, okay, I like Jesus. He's going to be my entree. But you know, I really like some things in the Quran here. And, you know, I saw some stuff from Confucius who didn't believe in, in any of this. But, yeah, he said some good stuff. And, yeah, I know that this cult leader hates everything that we stand for. But, you know, yeah, I like that. And, and, you know, I'm just an American, so that's kind of sprinkling all over all that. We have some things that we just know, right? And, and that's what I believe. No way. There is no other God. Don't bring that stuff in my face, God says. Christ is enough. Do you remember the story we've shared before where the king was going to die and he sent messengers to the Lord of the flies to find out if he was going to die. And Elijah stopped his messengers and said, is it because there's no God in Israel? You've got to go to the Philistine God of garbage to find out if you're going to die. Same thing for you and me. Don't get your spiritual life from other things. Don't get your spiritual life from other people that don't have anything to do with Jesus Christ. You know, I, I want, I've never fallen into certainly idolatry, but there have been times where I've been like, you know, this guy's not a believer, but he's really got some good things to say. And, you know, maybe there's some stuff we can learn from him. You stick around long enough, you will always get to a place where you realize, nope, this person doesn't know God at all. And there, we have nothing in common if we don't have Jesus in common. So this is so important. Christ is enough. And most of the time when people say things like, but I just love the discipline that they have in the Buddhist faith. Well, what about discipline in the Christian life? We have our own heritage. I just love the beauty of the poetry of Islam. You've got a, a giant book of poetry in the middle of your Bible. Read that. We've been writing hymns for 2,000 years. I just love the stories. We can, our stories beat everybody else's stories. Look to your own heritage. It's a weird thing that we do in America where we don't always want to look to our own heritage. We want to go find someone else's and say, oh, I want to believe that instead. But look to what God has passed on to you. 
Take the time to delight yourself in the Lord, and you won't even be tempted to violate this first one. Luckily, I don't think most of us are in danger of worshiping other gods. So let's go on to number two. Verse four, and we'll go to verse six here. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and the fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. The second of the Ten Commandments is against idolatry. This was the persistent temptation of Israel. And as we go through the Old Testament, it'll almost get tedious and baffling how they can keep going back to these false gods. But without necessarily holding up a graven image, we fall into the same temptation. That word here for image is pesel in Hebrew, and it means carved, something that you would carve. And of course, it can also refer to something made of metal or anything like that. But it is important to note that almost every time when the Old Testament uses the word idol, as we translate it in English, idol is a Greek transliteration, idolon, which means empty. That's a pretty good word for idol, I think. But they will use words like aven, which mean meaningless or useless. There are a lot of really dismissive names that the Old Testament gives to idols. And we look at that, we get that now because the Lord spent thousands of years drumming it into our heads that it's dumb to bow down to something you made yourself. Psalm 115, starting in verse three says, our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. Their idols are silver and gold, the work of human hands. And they run through that long list. They have eyes, but they can't see and ears, but they can't hear. And in verse 8, it says, those who make them become like them. So do all who trust in them. There's that passage in Isaiah where he says, you chop down a tree, you cut part of it for firewood, you take the rest of it and you make something out of it, and then you make an idol with the rest and bow down to it and cry out for it to save me. The, idol, the Old Testament gets really sarcastic when it comes to idols. And it tells us here two things. Number one, we are not to bow down to them. This is the act. This is literally showing reverence to something. And number two is serve them, which is, of course, to treat them as a god or a master. And I think, I would imagine in idolatrous cultures, you have some of both. You have some that see this as a cultural thing, something that you do because you do it. And I understand that this idol is not real, but they still will bow down and make the little sacrifices. And then you've got those that truly believe that this is the god that I worship and, and their heart's all in it. But it's important to know that both of those things are forbidden in this commandment. The bowing down, the making obeisance, the reverence to a, a carved or painted or sculpted image, and also to serving them, treating them as your God or master. The Bible says that idolatry degrades the one who bows down to it. And we can say things like, well, aren't, I thought there's no God other than the Lord. Well, yes, of course not. So in that sense, an idol is nothing. But Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 10, bowing down to these other idols, he says, you're having communion with demons that are trying to deceive you. He says, and I don't want you to have fellowship with the demons. And I say, me neither to that. And all around the world, this is still widely practiced. Not so much here. Thank God. Wherever the church goes and gets a good hold on something, idolatry gets pushed away. And we think of it as so basic that they don't really worship those things. Oh, yes, they do. 
I've been to Nepal several times, and we were in this one temple called uh, the Pashpati Temple. And it's in a lot of movies. If they're going to make a movie and try and make it look real spiritual, they'll, they'll go here. They always have to clean it up and doctor the image and make it look real nice, though. But there was one part where they said we weren't allowed to go in because they said only, only Nepalis are allowed to go and worship there. It's kind of like a little holy of holies. But I decided I wanted to see what was in there, so I thought I would take a little uh, play the dumb tourist thing. Like, I can't understand your accent. And I was able to get not through the door, but right up to the door and see what they were worshiping. And it was this giant bull, this, this enormous golden, I don't know if it's solid gold, but it was a golden statue of a bull, bigger than your car. And they're bowing down to it and burning incense and leaping and wailing and chanting to this God. And then this very nice Nepali man says, no, 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 sir, you can't go in there. And I was like, oh, I can't go in here? I can't. Yeah, I want to go in here. No, you can't go. So they, I'm sure they get that all the time. But, you know, it's, it's serious. It's serious. We went to the Buddhist stupa. It's called the stupa there. And it kind of sounds like stupid in English, which, you know, that works. But they have the, you go into these things and they've got these giant golden statues that people bow down. Can I tell you, anybody who tells you that Buddhism is not idolatrous and doesn't believe in God they're either ignorant or they're lying to you. I've been there, and I, I think they would know over there where Buddha lived, you know. And they, they've statues of him, and there's his bones in this giant thing that they've built around it. And the more times you walk around, the more luck that will come to you. And if you spin this prayer wheel, we wrote a prayer on it. So if you spin it, that's one prayer. If you spin it three times, it's three prayers. So they get these little things with a weight on the end, and they walk around spinning them like this, sending up hundreds of prayers all day long. It's, it's foolishness. You go, What? Really? Come on, guys. This is, you know, 2020, whatever it is, you know, and you guys are still doing this? Yes, because idolatry does that. They also will bow down to animals, to monkeys and to dogs and to cows and people will get stepped on and pushed off to the side. But, you know, heaven help on, on dog day where they all celebrate and worship these mangy dogs and they all get sick from it. This is the real deal. And this is one of the first things that a culture has to learn is that there are no idols to be had. I also would add to this, although it, I think it might be on a different level here, that there are churches that reverence icons and images, especially in the Eastern Orthodox, where you go in and I mean, it's pictures and paintings of, of this saint and that God and this picture of Jesus. And over here, you have the bones of a saint that you're supposed to bow down to and and they will be, you know, they'll, they'll be dogged and telling, no, 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 we're not worshiping. We're, we're venerating, right? We're, we're not worshiping Mary. We're venerating Mary. We're just bowing down to her statue and lighting candles. You know, I, I don't know how you can read this verse and think that that's okay. You shall not make a likeness of anything that is in heaven above or the earth beneath or in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. And it scares me that there are many who, Name the name of Jesus, and yet don't think anything of that. So that will never happen here. I'll tell you that much. God warns us. He said, I'm not going to permit this. I'm a jealous God. This is the good kind of jealous. You want your husband to be jealous for you, ladies. And there's the jealous husband. But then there's also like, hey, don't, don't, no, don't talk to her. That's my wife. You don't, no, no, don't talk to him. That's my husband. You know, some of y'all ladies will get fierce. You see some lady talking to your husband, even if it's all on the up and up. You're at the grocery store, and that checkout seems to be taking just a second too long. You're going to step up and be like, hello, I'm his wife. What are you doing talking? That's the good kind of jealousy, and we all like that. 
Because I was, okay, they care. They want, they only want me to be for them. That's the jealousy that the Lord has. But it's on, I mean, on a cosmic level, right? He says, I'm the one that created you and made you and saved you. And I'm not going to stand for this and for you to be making idols and images. He brought judgment on Egypt's gods, we read in chapter 12, verse 12. 1 Samuel 5, they bring the Ark of the Covenant into the Philistine temple of Dagon and the idol falls over twice. You know, you had to help him up the first time because, you know, your God fell over. Poor Dagon. The next day, God had smashed off his head and his hands. 1 Kings 18, 27 has Elijah mocking the prophets of Baal. They're yelling and weeping and wailing and cutting themselves and the blood was running and Elijah goes, hey, fellas, just yell a little louder. I'm sure maybe he's in the bathroom. You just keep yelling, oh, here, yeah, maybe he's on a vacation. That's how the Bible deals with idols. And the greatest kings of Israel were those that smashed the idols. Not just the idols, but the high places. Those are the places where they were worshiping the Lord, but in a different place and in a different manner than he had prescribed. God is serious about this. You yourself are the temple of the Holy Spirit. And there's a whole other lesson we could get into about not allowing anything else to be raised alongside God in your life. You serve the Lord and him only. Verse 7, you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Third, it's commandment against blasphemy, taking the Lord's name in vain. So literally, this is to take his name, as in to take it upon your lips, is a Hebrew idiom. And in vain is also to nothing, as in to no effect, or for no purpose, or never intending to fulfill what you're saying with it. God's name is holy. Consider how wonderful the revelation of God's name was to Moses. I am who I am. And here he is announcing, I am the Lord your God. He says, so you're not going to use my name like it's nothing. In fact, the Hebrews would get to a place, they won't even speak the name of God. They won't say Yahweh or Jehovah. And in fact, we're not 100% sure how to pronounce that because they deliberately put the wrong vowels under the name of the Lord so that nobody could pronounce it. It's why you'll hear if you read a place in the Bible where it's Lord and it's all caps, that's the I am name of God. It'll be pronounced Adonai which just means Lord or Master. We retain that tradition by calling God the Lord. They wouldn't write the name down unless they washed their hands seven times first and seven times afterwards. And I'm not saying we've got to do all that, but if they would not even approach the name of God without consecration, sometimes they'll even say Hashem, which means the name when they talk about God. They wouldn't even say the Lord or Adonai, they'll just say the name. They got that lesson. Some other things they needed to learn, but they got that part. This is related to what the New Testament will get into extensively, the idea of an oath or a swear. We call it swearing, and right? Cussing is like cursing. And in the Bible, the Old Testament, you were not to make an oath or swear or promise in God's name falsely. If you said, as they will say in the Bible, as the Lord lives, or by God I shall. You are expected to do that. Ecclesiastes 5.5 says it is better not to vow anything than to vow and not fulfill your vow. Until you get to the New Testament and in James 5 verse 12, it kind of sums it all up. He says, above all brothers, interesting that he says, above all my brothers, do not swear either by heaven or by earth or by any other oath 
But let your yes be yes and your no be no, so that you may not fall under condemnation. He's saying, you don't need to stand up and say, by heaven and earth, I promise I will do it. He says, just be the kind of person where you can say yes and keep your yes. And you know, you know, remember when you were a kid? You ever do this when you were a kid? You say, do you pinky promise? Do you, do you swear? Do you double swear? My sisters and I used to do this. And, and we'd say something dumb like, you can break a promise, but you can't break a swear. Which is like, you shouldn't need to promise or swear, kid. You should just be able to say, I'm going to do it and have it be true. And this is how a lot of the things that we call curse words, things that we call profanity, came about. We don't use them quite like this today, but let me give you an example. Back in the day, an oath or swearing according to scripture would be something like, you know, let's say somebody hurts you, right? I swear by God that I shall have my revenge. I swear by God. And it becomes something you just say flippantly until you're just saying, oh, by God, I'm doing this. And to the point where you drop even that, and now we're just using God's name as an expletive. God, oh my God. Oh, Jesus. These, these are, this is swearing. This applies to other things that we say too, by the way. We use the word damn in scripture. That's a pretty intense word, isn't it? Which means it's an intense thing for you to call on God to damn something. You are, when we say that word and, and we say God damn this or them, you're calling upon God to send someone to hell. How dare you? Do you see that? When we use the word like hell like that. When you use the name of God, the holy, the Bible says the name above every name, that of Jesus. Find another way to have filler language. It's inappropriate for us to use the name of God for any other purpose than worship and prayer and things like that. Do not swear at all. Right? You shouldn't even, I'll, I'll never forget this. I thought this was so silly at the time. And as I've gotten older, I'm starting to realize some of the wisdom of this. My, I was at a Christian high school, so this is why it makes some sense, but... My English teacher, 12th grade, she came to class after one of our chapels one day, and she said, I want to apologize to all of you. I'm like, what'd she do? You know? It's because it's, I say, holy cow, and I shouldn't. And we go, what? Of all the things you could say, holy cow, is that? She goes, well, the Lord revealed something to me. He revealed to me, number one, I shouldn't be using the word holy for anything that isn't actually holy. And second of all, she says, while I'm saying holy cow, what I mean in my heart when I say that is what somebody else means when they use some word that I'm not willing to use. So for that, I want to apologize. And I, that was a really profound thing. And I'm not trying to even push it to that level. I'm just saying she understood, I don't need to be using that kind of expletive anyway. That's very much how we talk these days. You just kind of have all these filler words. But she goes, I need to just talk slower and express myself better. I love that. We do not use God's name, though, especially in vain. Like, it does not mean anything by it. Exactly. Right? Christ's name is above every name. So, some of us, including myself, and I certainly don't use the Lord's name that way, but even some of the things we say. It says, do not swear by heaven. Do not swear by earth. Jesus said, don't swear by your head. Because you can't control any of that stuff. So maybe speak plainly is a Christian mandate we should hold on to a little better. Verses 8 through 11. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you 
or your son, or your daughter, your male servant, or your female servant, or your livestock, or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Fourth is the command to keep the Sabbath. And boy, is there a lot of confusion over this one. Because the Ten Commandments run real smooth until we hit number four. But let's talk about it. The Sabbath, this is the Hebrew word Shabbat. Orthodox Jews will still refer to it as Shabbat. That word means rest or stop. To have a little stop, have a little rest. And the first time God commanded them to do this was in chapter 16, verse 23. You remember when they were collecting manna. You collect manna six days, seventh day, you're not going to collect it, but God will give you double the amount on the day before. And the Jews to this day, every Saturday, the seventh day, they keep their Shabbat. And God tied this here, as we had seen some time ago, in Genesis chapter 2, the Lord rested on the seventh day. Did God need to rest? Was he tired? No. He was setting a pattern and an example for us. So Israel was not to work. And do you like how he closes off the loopholes here? You shall not work or your son or daughter. So uh, I, I don't work, but my kids do. No, that doesn't work either. Oh, my male and female servants. You know, the slaves still have to work. But, you know, we're Israelites. We take a break. God goes, no, 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 they don't either. What about the, the sojourner in your gates? Well, he's not even an Israelite. He, he's just an illegal alien, and he needs the money, and it's Saturday, and we can't work, but I still need this thing done. No, nobody works. Nehemiah would have to enforce this with his fists in the book of Nehemiah later. He said, if you come back here to sell on the Sabbath day again, I'm going to lay hands upon you. That's not like he was going to pray for him, you understand, man. That was, that was like UFC laying hands on you. I don't know how he said that, but they didn't come back. So there's, there's something to think about. So this is, a good, this is a good law. And I can imagine people that are coming out of slavery in Egypt, hearing that they're going to get one day off a week. Like, all right, this isn't so bad after all. All right, I can't, I can't worship my idols anymore, but I get Saturdays off. However, over time, as you know very well, Israel began to attach all manner of legalistic tradition to just this very simple thing. Take one day to rest, and it became the most stressful, aggravating day of the week. Which is why one of the things Jesus seemed like he was always doing when he was on earth was breaking the Sabbath. But you look at it and you go, well, did he though? He healed somebody on the Sabbath. They plucked heads of grain and ate the grains when they were walking through the fields on the Sabbath. And in Mark 2, 27, Jesus says, The Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. What's the point? If man was made for the Sabbath, God is, I've got this special day that needs to be commemorated. So let's make some people so they can keep my day. He says, the Sabbath was made for you. It's to be a blessing for you. And you all have turned God's blessing around into a, a pain for these people. The Sabbath was made for man. He says, and I'm Lord of the Sabbath. And he liberated his followers from keeping it, especially according to their Rituals and according to their traditions. And the church has always had a special day of worship and of rest throughout church history. We began to worship on Sunday within the first century. Another little thing people say a lot. That did not begin with Constantine in like the, the Council of Nicaea. That was happening well before that. They would meet on the first day of the week because that was the day that Jesus rose from the dead. Also because many of them were Jews and they were still keeping the Sabbath. So then they would all come together, Jews and Gentiles, the next day 
to celebrate what Jesus had done. The earliest Roman reports on Christians tell us that that was what they did. And it lines up with what the Apostolic Fathers wrote as well. And it became a day not just of rest, but of worship. And this is important to remember too. The Sabbath was not a day of worship. It was a day of rest. They were to worship. And very often the festivals, as we'll see, interacted and and, uh, overlapped with the Sabbath. But it was not, this is your day to go to synagogue. It would become that later on. But it was a day of rest. And it might seem odd to us if you're trying to bind yourself to the law. But if you're not, this will be okay for you. This is the one commandment of the 10 that was especially singled out for a New Testament revision. Why? Probably because they had gone a little nuts with it. This is something that Jesus talked about all the time. They talk about it specifically in the the epistles that we don't keep the Sabbath like they did then. And there, I would say most aberrant Christian groups, most, I guess we'd call them cults, but not even just cults, just those that have aberrant doctrine. seems like one of the first things they want to latch onto is that Sabbath day and bring it back. There was an Adventist church in Lynchburg that had billboards down the freeway that said, worshiping on Sunday is the mark of the beast. It's like, oh, wow. Okay. Of course, they never had a problem with us worshiping on Wednesday, which we do every week or Tuesday or Monday. No, just Sunday. That's the bad one. Colossians 2, 16 through 17, and obviously this could be its own message, and we'll probably talk about it more another time, but Paul says, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink. So keeping kosher, right? Let no one pass judgment on you or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Lots of people want to put judgment on you in regard to Sabbaths and festivals. And they never keep them according to the scriptures. You know, they'll they'll order Uber Eats on the Sabbath, which you're not supposed to have other people working for you, right? Or that, you know, no one ever goes on a pilgrimage to Jerusalem to keep the Feast of Tabernacles, yet they somehow say they're keeping it. So Paul says, don't let anybody judge you. Somebody wants to come to you and try to do some big roundabout argument that essentially amounts to, you've got to go to church on Saturday. By the way, hey, if you want to go to church on Saturday, knock yourself out. Just don't put it on anybody else. Romans 14.5 says, One man esteems one day above another. Another esteems every day alike. He says, Let each be firmly convinced in his own mind. Our rest, the book of Hebrews goes into great detail to say, is in Christ. That Christ has given us rest. And the Sabbath was a picture of what God was going to do. And the day on which we worship is not relevant. You should worship every day. Last week, we worshiped Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday. We were going to do Friday, but it was like five degrees outside. So, you know, we did it from home, right? Why is it just the one that that people want to point out? It, It becomes legalism and not grace. However, so that's sorting out the specifics, right? Let's look at the principle here. I think we all can learn the importance of taking a special day aside to rest. This is your command against workaholism. Working all day, every day, burning the midnight oil every night. God always keeps me in line with that one because if I start doing that, he gets me sick. If I stay up too late too many nights in a row, my wife is nodding right now. Yeah, I don't get sick much, but when I do that, yeah, I totally do. And taking aside a special day to worship, we do that. That's why we have Sunday, right? We have Sunday worship. Devote time to your family, to devote time to the Lord. And depending on what you do for a living, your Sabbath can look different. Your day of rest. If you're a farmer and you're out in the, in the fields all day, every day, 
Last thing you want to do is go out and work in the garden on your day off. But if you work in an office all day, pushing paper and typing on the computer, you know, eight hours a day, going outside and, and you know, planting some flowers or something might be a great Sabbath day for you. We ought to make sure that we do that. As an employer, you need to make sure you're not running your employees into the ground and not giving them a chance to rest. Devoting time to the Lord. If you never take time to Shabbat, to stop, you burn yourself out. And the devil will do that. He will crank your busyness up to 24-7 so that you never have time to get alone with Jesus and pray. You want to get serious about prayer? You'll be amazed how fast your schedule fills up. That commitment to pray has to include a commitment to say no to other things in order to maintain that commitment. Keep the Sabbath. Keep it in a godly way. Take a rest. Take a break. Take time to worship. Give the Lord your time. But don't let anybody put any legalistic trip upon you because the Bible tells us that Jesus is Lord of the Sabbath and he set us free from that. Maybe you have time for one or two more here. I guess we are going to go till next week with these. But let's look at verse 12. Honor your father and your mother that your days may be long in the land that your Lord God is giving you. Commandments 1 through 4 primarily relate to God. And these were traditionally what were written on the first tablet. That's going to come later. We're not at the tablets yet. Those that relate to us and the Lord, the vertical commandments, you might say. And then commandments 5 through 10 are the horizontal ones. They relate to the community. So remember, God is not just handing out moral lessons here. He's also bringing together this covenant community, this, this nation, right? He's building a country, a, a nation state here. So he's going to give us these commandments that are, you might say, why did he pick these six? Well, because these are some foundational things that help hold a society together. And that's a really fun lens to look at these next ones through. So we'll do some of that. So fifth, we are told to honor your father and your mother. And as Ephesians 6.2 says and reminds us, this is the first commandment with a promise. Many times in the law, he'll say, do this so that I will. Well, this is the first time that happens. Honor your father and mother that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. You want to live a good life? You want to live a long life? Honor your mother and father. Now, is this saying that God is going to strike down anybody that disobeys? Well, no, but there, he is going to make provision later that rebellious children could be put to death. So there's that. But also, I think if you honor your father and mother, it's going to go well for you. Have, you know, I need a mentor. I need someone to teach me. Well, God gave you two called mom and dad. Honor your father and mother. The integrity of the family, crucial to maintaining a community, maintaining a church, even maintaining a nation, right? As our families have grown more and more fractured, as more and more single parent homes are proliferating, and you know, there's all kinds of other things that go into that. I'm just saying that as the family falls apart, it gets harder and harder and harder. And every difficult stat increases the, the, I guess, the more fractured the family becomes. Which is why in the church, we ought to honor the role of mother and father as holy offices. And that children ought to obey their parents. That's not very modern and progressive of me, I guess. Because, I mean, today the authority of the family is totally broken down. And the parent's job has become to empower their children. Okay, that's a piece of it. You know, when they're about to grow up and graduate, you want them to have empower to walk away and, and live a life for themselves. But, you know, parents are, are allowing their children to decide things that a child has no business deciding. 
Children don't know what's right. They have to be taught what is right. That includes as they, as they get a little older. And as a child gets older, you go from because I said so to let me explain why. But because I said so still matters. Sometimes my parents, when I was growing up, say, I don't want you hanging out with that guy so much. Why? I don't, I just, it doesn't feel right to me. There's something not right about that guy. Turns out they were right very often. And if not, it taught me to honor and obey my parents. I mean, the parents, and without getting off into this, that you know, want their three or four-year-old children to decide what gender they are. You'd make your kid brush his teeth, but you're going to let him decide what he's going to do with his, the hormones in his body? You make your kid go to school, but you let him decide if he wants to go to church or not? We have to insist on what is right with our children. Parents, don't be afraid to lead your family and insist on obedience. And, you know, the world, is, is, the world as a whole is terrible at child-rearing. You know, we're, we're not creating like the best generation of kids the world's ever seen. So who cares about their approval? Well, they don't like what we do. Well, the person that wrote that children's book has no children. Isn't, isn't that kind of always the way? Haven't you found that? They have no kids or they have one and, and you know, the child is two and seems to be very well behaved. <laughs> don't, your job as a parent is not to try to be fun or to be, you know, impressing other people. Your job is to raise functional people that can leave the house and continue to live the life that they have and to be a productive citizen and to be there and, and sustaining and supporting the family. And this commandment, of course, it never expires, but it does take different forms over time. Right? When, it, when an adult has, has gotten married, especially, and moved out, the Bible says a man shall leave his father and mother and cleave unto his wife and the two shall become one flesh. You essentially start a new family unit. And at that point, you know, dad, you need to stop calling up your, your son and telling him what he's got to do. And son, you've got to buck up and be a man and tell dad, dad, I love you, but I'm married now and I have my own family. And, you know, those transition periods when people get married and they're having kids and people are going off to college, those are some, some stressful times. Because you got to make some elbow room in the family picture a little bit. And, you know, now this kid is taller than you and you used to turn him over your knee. And it's, it's a transition. But that's, I mean, that's life. That's the way it goes. Later on, when you get older and your parents are older, you have a responsibility to honor your father and mother by taking care of them in their old age. Now we're going to talk about that in the book of the law. And connected to this, by the way, is the responsibility of parents to make this as easy in a good way for their children as possible. Colossians 3 ties this together. He says, children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Fathers, do not provoke your children, lest they become discouraged. So there you go. Children, obey your parents in everything. But fathers, don't, don't provoke your children. Mothers, same thing. Don't provoke your children. Sometimes we, we can get really, you know, taking a lot of our problems and putting them on our kids and making it their problem. They're too young. They don't know what's going on. They just know that when mom's like this, we better get out of the room. When dad gets like that, it's time for me to get on my bike and skip on out of here. Don't do that. You know, we all go through that phase where we think we know more than mom and dad, but mom and dad, don't you ever go to, through a phase where you think your child knows more than you because they don't. They need you to be strong and be a parent. You're going to have lots of friends. You have lots of teachers. You have lots of mentors. You're only ever going to have one mom and one dad. One grandma, well, I guess two grandmas and two grandpas, right? So we've got to honor those roles and and. Make them in the church to be something that we value. And let the, I, what I think is, you know, it's really easy to talk about what's wrong with the church. 
I think what's awesome about the church, especially here and the churches I've been a part of, and for the most part what I can see in the church today, we're doing this pretty well still. We, we, you can find that old-fashioned way of doing family in the church. People will write these big, long articles about the death of the community and the death of the small town and how we've got to make sure that the children are having interaction with older people and older people are still seeing children and there's generations that lead each other. And where is that to be found? I'm like, well, come to my church this weekend. You can find it there. It's a wonderful thing that we still have. And as times change, the world is probably going to get a little hungry for that. And you'll see this happen. People will say, you know, I don't know if I believe in all this God stuff, but I want my kids to be around some good people. And then that's... That's dangerous because then the Lord will get you if you stick around church too long, right? Honor your father and mother. And I think we maybe have time for one more. Verse 13. Shall not murder. Thou shalt not kill. Quite a ring to that one. But you shall not murder. Sixth is the command against killing. Very basic, right? Like idolatry. Hopefully you get this one. But it's still very important. Now, this, this is a point that has been overemphasized, and I think I myself may have overemphasized this in the past. The word for murder here is ratzach in Hebrew. And I've often heard this say, when it says thou shalt not kill, it's referring to premeditated murder, and, you know, it's, it's not extending to all these other things. Uh, that's, that's saying it too strongly. This does include premeditated murder, but it's used other times in the law to refer to instances of negligence, you were a killer, for example. He says if you had a, a bull or an ox that you knew what, had a bad temper and liked to gore people, and you didn't tie it up and it got after somebody, he says that's on you. That's, you have ratzach. You have killed that person. It also refers to instances of revenge, where the Lord will allow people to avenge their kinsmen. There's a whole series of laws that goes into that, and he'll use the term ratzach, which, of course, is not premeditated murder. Uh, but this is not complicated. Don't kill anybody. Just don't. If, if you're confused about that, don't kill anybody. And you are to take appropriate precautions to make sure you don't kill anybody, which would probably extend to things like obeying the speed limit, not getting yourself inebriated and picking up a weapon or something like that. Don't kill anybody. This notably does not include instances where the Bible permits I don't say murder because it's not murder, but permits killing to be done. Genesis 9 verse 6 says that if a man sheds the blood of another, by a man shall his blood he shed. God gives permission to the state to execute those who commit capital crimes. Romans 13 4 says the state, or the king, but in our case the state, bears the sword for the Lord in order to enforce righteousness. This would apply to warfare. We're going to see that the Lord is going to celebrate the wars that Israel goes on. So I don't think that if you, I don't know that you can read the Bible and call yourself a strict pacifist in that sense. I think there's certainly liberty to, but the Bible tells us that there's a time and a place for men to step up and fight. Self-defense, this is going to be in the law too. In a fallen world, sometimes hard choices have to be made. And the Lord expects the righteous at times to stand up against unrighteousness, even at the point of a sword if need be. And there are those in the church that want to advocate even against this. Well, if we're pro-life and we say you shouldn't abort babies, we should also be pro-life and say you don't execute criminals. Okay? I can see why you would advocate for that, but I don't think you can stand on biblical grounds. They're not the same thing. The Bible says that if somebody, for example, the example we're given, has murdered somebody, justice demands that they be killed. The issue with abortion primarily is that this is an innocent 
life. This is someone that has not done good or bad, as the Bible says. So I don't think it's a, it's a fair equivalency, but I really don't have a, a problem with people that want to advocate for other ways of doing things. But you know what? Jesus would expand this to include not just murder and not just violence, but even hatred and insults. Matthew 5, 21 through 22, Jesus said, You've heard that it was said to those of old, You shall not murder, which is this verse we're reading right here. And whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Another synoptic says angry without a cause. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. Most of us do pretty good at not killing anybody. But have you allowed hateful attitudes to creep into your heart? Have you ever caught yourself so angry in a moment that you surprise yourself? Not that you're, maybe you're not blowing up out loud, but just you're seething and you realize there is some serious anger trapped in there. Most of us have never been pushed to the place where we'd see what we would do in a situation where things really went down. But you've got to be able to get a handle on that ahead of time. Jesus said, you don't get to hate people. You don't get to hate your brother. You don't get to get angry and rant and rave at people. I don't care if you're online or not. He says, that's worthy of hell to do that. And I think, myself included, our, our passion for sarcasm in this day and age could get us in trouble. You know, very often we'll say things like, oh, you idiot. And we don't really, we're not trying to insult the person. We're just, you know, we're having fun, we're joking, we're teasing. But even so, as I was reading this, I'm like, you know what, Lord? It seems like the talking ones are ones I could really stand to improve upon a little bit. So I just want to get a little bit closer, get a little bit better. Not just do the obvious thing, but to do the holy thing and be consecrated unto the Lord. To destroy the image bearer of God is a terrible thing. It is permissible in extreme cases, but you also need to make sure you don't have a murderous heart because whether you act upon it or not, if you're sitting there in that murderous rage, the Lord sees that and he will judge you for it. And Jesus told us, I'm not just asking you, to do the right thing. I'm asking you to get your heart right. So not just don't kill. Don't hate, but be full of love. Jesus even would go farther and say, not only do I not want you to kill anybody, I don't want you to hate anybody. Not only that, I don't want you to insult anybody. Not only that, I want you to love everybody. Completely flipped around. And we're going we're gonna to end with the sixth commandment tonight, and we'll pick up with seven through ten next week. But I think it's important for us to note that the New Testament says that it is love that fulfills the law because love does no wrong to a neighbor. If you're going to love the Lord your God and love the neighbor as yourself, you're not going to break these laws. And I think there's plenty of things for us to learn from this. And we ought to be constantly coming back and not just saying, okay, yeah, I don't kill anybody. But, you know, stopping and saying, but am I loving everyone? Do I love him? Do I love her? Those people that make me so angry. Do I turn that to prayer? Or do I allow myself to stew in it? Have I allowed other things to become an idolatrous presence in my life? Am I trying to sample other spiritual and magical and mystical ideas that, that, that have not come from Scripture? Evaluate yourself, Christian. And let the Lord show you that it is love that is the more excellent way. And because the Lord has loved us, He didn't lead us out of Egypt. He saved us from death and hell by sending His Son on the cross. So He's worthy of our obedience.